This is a podcast from Seven Vineyard. Good morning, everyone. Lovely to see you. Um, my name's Dan, and for those of you who don't know me, I am married to Karen, who is today doing her soccer mom thing. Uh, she's with my son Noah, who plays often on a Sunday morning. So we'll wait and see this afternoon if today was a good day and he banged in a couple of goals and is winning at life, or whether it's one of those days where he got put in goal and we spend the rest of the day picking up the pieces. I get it. I get it. It's tough. Um, uh, I also have Jasmine and Layla who are here. And um, I have a few different roles. So I'm on the staff team here at Seven. Um, I help oversee the community groups that meet during the week. I help lead a charity in Bristol called Bridges for Communities that works with communities of different cultures and faiths, trying to create connection and understanding. And I also do some freelance uh, training and coaching work for people who are moving countries. So I've thought about making a little business card that says I'm a professional juggler. Um, It may be slightly misleading, but I've always wanted a cool business card, and that would be cooler than what I actually do. Um, Anyway, it's lovely to see you all. And over the last few weeks, Owen has been leading a series called Questioning Our Assumptions. And he's certainly been asking some big questions. Uh, I don't know if you've been able to hear all of the talks, um, but he's been talking about how we read the Bible, how we interpret some of the key stories in it, whether the way that our faith or our belief in Jesus impacts uh, our standing and our relationship with God, whether the way that we've understood that is, is in fact correct. And I'm sure for some of you, this has been really refreshing, really reassuring. We can talk about these things. I know for me, I've really appreciated how he's kind of set a culture and a tone where it's okay to question, it's okay to have doubts, it's okay to be real about where we're at with our beliefs. Um, But as Greg alluded to at the beginning, I'm sure for others, it's also been perhaps a bit unsettling. Uh, Some of these questions you may not have really wrestled with before, and that's okay too. That's normal. Uh, You may be wondering where it's going, where it leads us, and what what good can come of asking these big questions. Maybe isn't it it easier, isn't it better, isn't it more comfortable uh, to kind of just stick with what we know or we think we know? And so today I wanted to share with you a few thoughts about how I relate to these topics personally. Um, You know, asking questions, having doubts, deconstructing my faith... I'm going to talk through some of the things that I've wrestled with over the years, some of the questions that I've asked and why, and then I'm also going to try and share with you some of the anchors that I, that I now hold on to, you know, amidst the questions, amidst the tensions, what, what do I hold on to, what has kind of kept me in the game. And I'd encourage you just to be thinking about your own anchors um, as, as I do that. But before I get onto my own story, I wanted to look at someone else's story. It's someone in the Bible and someone who I think has become, unfortunately, always associated with doubt. Uh, If you grew up in a Christian home like me or going to church and I asked you who in the Bible you would associate with doubting, I'm pretty sure most of you would say Thomas, which I think is really unfortunate because he was, in fact, a person of faith. He was a person who had chosen to follow Jesus, who had risked everything to do that. 
But history has kind of put him down as this man who doubted. And the reason for that is a story that happens in John chapter 20. And as we read this and as we discuss it today, I want you to be thinking again about that question of what good can come from our questions and our doubts? Is it possible that it can actually lead us into something better, something richer? So John chapter 20, verses 24 Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. This is after he's died and then appeared to the disciples alive again. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again. Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet who have believed. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So I grew up hearing this story and assuming, I think, that we shouldn't be like Thomas. We don't, he's one of those people in the Bible that you don't want to emulate. That it was a bad thing that he made this demand to see Jesus' scars, and it would have been better for him if he'd had the faith to just be able to accept what his friends had told him, that they'd seen the resurrected Jesus. But there's another way to read this story too, and that is to say that because of Thomas's doubts, something good came about. His, his doubts are framed as a statement, unless I see, I won't believe, but I think they convey a whole bunch of questions. You know, is it really possible, this thing that you're telling me that has never happened in human history before, is it really true that out of all of this confusion and suffering, out of all of these shattered lives and shattered dreams, Jesus might actually be back and might be alive? And it's because of that question, because of that doubt, that Thomas goes on to have this incredible, unique moment with Jesus, where he gets to touch the scars that were marks of Jesus' death. He gets to, with his own flesh, with his own skin, his own senses, to touch and to know for sure that there was resurrection life flowing through Jesus' body. Just imagine being able to hold on to that. Just imagine being able to say in the years to come when people questioned what he believed and what he was doing, that that had been your experience. Just imagine that memory that Thomas could hold on to. Perhaps it's one of the reasons or one of the things that enabled him, according to early Christian tradition, to travel as far as India and to share the story and the experience that he had had of Jesus. So something good does come out of doubt in the story of Thomas. And this story and the the talks that Owen's been giving over the last few weeks I've got me thinking a little bit about 
the role of questions and doubts in my own life and the way at which in ver at various points those questions and doubts have led me into something new, into something that was good. And just before I share some of those, I wanted to introduce a little framework um, that I've come across and found quite helpful and which I think you'll see as I share some of my examples, you'll see this framework uh, in those examples. It's a four-part framework. I don't know what it is about four-part frameworks, but I really like them. The, the recent series I did called Mending the Divides, I used a four-part framework, see, immerse, contend, restore. Maybe my brain you know, can, can comprehend of this complexity. But it's, it's from an author called Brian McLaren and a book um, that I've been reading of his called Faith After Doubt. And the four stages in this framework, and they're, they're described as stages of faith, are simplicity, complexity, perplexity, and then harmony. And McLaren makes it clear in the book that these are not his original idea. They're a compilation of ideas from other authors and thinkers. But he's put them into this, I think, really helpful and accessible language. So just to run through them, the first stage, simplicity. This is, this is characterized by clarity, but by dualism. You know, right or wrong, true or false, black, or, black and white, us and them, in and out. And it's also characterized by a tendency where we accept the authority uh, of others, or we accept what our authorities tell us. That's simplicity. Complexity is characterized by nuance. It's realizing that there are different views of the world. There are different points of view, different perspectives of reality. This is where things get a little bit messy. Then perplexity does what it says on the tin, characterized by unknowing, by mystery, maybe by frustration, and to some degree by suspicion of what we've been told. And then the final stage is harmony, which is characterized by humility, by being able to hold different things in tension and be at peace with them. And McLaren describes these as stages of faith that um, you know, often uh, occur through the course of our lives or over the kind of wider arc of our, of our lifetime. Um, but I've found these helpful in thinking about specific parts of my life, specific periods where I was asking specific questions, almost like cycles that have gone on you know, through my life. So uh, simplicity, complexity, perplexity, and then into some kind of harmony, and then on to another phase and another question. And I suspect that you've done this too. Uh, I hope that you can kind of relate to that framework. I, I don't know what life has thrown your way. It'll be different to what it's thrown at me. But uh, hopefully as I describe a little bit of, of my story, uh, it will prompt you to think about your own. So let me tell you about three particular times that have come to mind um, where I've been through this, uh, these different stages, and then you can see what you think. So I, I grew up in India, actually. My mum and dad worked out there in an international Christian school, and um, my faith became real to me at about the age of 15, somewhere around there. I decided I wanted my life to make a difference, and I wanted to spend it serving God. I was just overwhelmed by God's love and what he had done for me at that point. And although we were in a majority Hindu country, my world, my worldview, was one which very much divided the world into two groups of people, Christian and not Christian. That, that's, that's all there was. I then came back to university in Nottingham, 
And that was a very different world where the majority of people around me, again, didn't share the same beliefs. In fact, they didn't really believe in God at all. And not only that, they didn't really seem interested in what I believed. And they seemed to think that science and modern thinking had somehow disproved God long ago and made faith in him irrelevant. So I kind of attached myself to the Christian Union, uh, which was fairly traditional and fairly conservative, and which also divided the world very much into Christian and not Christian. That was just the way in which we conceived of things. But I think it was during that period of university that I started to question a few things and to deconstruct my faith for the first time, to ask if things were perhaps a bit more complex, a bit more nuanced than I had previously thought. You know, perhaps it was realizing that I was a part of a relatively small group of people who shared those same beliefs. Perhaps it was recognizing that although my group claimed to have exclusive access to the truth, I could see good things and I could see elements of those truths in what others believed as well. Perhaps it was realizing that uh, the lifestyles of those of us who claimed to, uh, to have that truth didn't always display things that were in line uh, with, with what I thought they should. So uh, those were some of the questions that university was raising for me, and it was tempting to kind of knuckle down into more of a simplicity worldview, black and white, um, you know, well, we just need to do more evangelism. We just need to talk to more people so that they become Christians too. And maybe it feels like the world is against us, but that shouldn't be surprising because, you know, the Bible said that's what we should expect anyway. That kind of thinking. And um, the thing that really broke through this for me was uh, there was a visiting speaker who became a good friend of ours called Carl Medeiros, and he introduced two ways of seeing the world. The first one is called a bounded set, and this was really the way I'd seen the world until this point. So in the bounded set, which will come up here, the emphasis is on in and out. There are some of us, and of course it's us who are in. We have the truth, or we have something that has caused us to be in, and there are others who are out. Um, and part of our job as those who are in is to go and persuade or convince people who are out to come and be in as well. And there's a very specific line which demarks, you know, the out to in process. And in my upbringing, that was pretty much saying a prayer of repentance. That, that was the line. If you recognize that you were a sinner and you asked Jesus for forgiveness and to come into your life, then you were in. And that was it. But there are some questions, there are some challenges around seeing the world that way. You know, for example, the way that I might have felt, I thought, you know, I'd said that prayer, I was in, but then I had a really bad week and made some bad choices and wondered if I was actually in. Or looking at others who claimed to be in and then, you know, maybe their lifestyle didn't match up with that. Or the, the journey that I had felt in coming to faith not being, you know, one particular moment where I prayed that prayer. Actually, it was more like being on a train across Europe where you're traveling between countries and you don't even realize that you've, you've crossed the border. You know, you suddenly wake up and you believe. Or you suddenly wake up and you're in Austria. Because you've crossed a point or several points where you now realize that you want to live for God and you want to put him at the center of your life. That, it was that kind of thing. So the other way of seeing the world, Carl called a uh, centered set. 
And in this model, Jesus is at the center, and the, the emphasis is not really on where that line is or how you cross that line or who's in and out, but on what the direction of travel is. At any given moment, am I moving towards Jesus or am I moving away? And while this doesn't answer all of the questions, for me, it became a much more helpful way of seeing the world. It was one that I, I could actually live with and which answered some of the questions that I'd had about the bounded set model. Uh, interestingly, uh, you know, this is not a perfect model either. So I was talking about this with the staff team the other week, and Claire raised a very good question, which is, doesn't even this still put too much emphasis on us, on our response? What about Jesus? What's Jesus doing? Isn't he active? You know, this portrays him as just being kind of static in the middle. So they're models, they're ways of seeing the world. But that second one, for me, was a way of moving through some of the complexity and perplexity that I was experiencing at university into what felt like more like a harmonious view of life and the world that I could live with. Second example, fast forward a few years, Karen and I, by this point, we were working in the Middle East, initially with Carl, and then uh, on into Jordan. And that threw a whole bunch of other questions our way. You know, if you want uh, to have an experience where you go through this cycle, I highly recommend moving to a different country, living in a different culture, being surrounded by people who believe um, different things to you. So there are many advantages of having friends of other faiths. They ask you different kinds of questions. They stretch you in different ways. So sitting down with Muslim friends, and majority of our friends in Jordan, of course, were Muslim, and you know, discussing with them ideas like the Trinity, and realizing that I had just kind of accepted this view of God three in one, you know, but I can't actually explain it, um, tricky or listening to their experiences of healing or of feeling God's peace, but being from a different religion, different faith background. Wrestling, what do you do with that? Where does that sit with the view of the world that I had? Um, so we were into complexity and then into perplexity. And pretty quickly, I think, we learned that the language and the labels that we used to describe our faith, the boxes that we had, were quite unhelpful because they led to tribalism, they led to defensiveness, they led to us versus you, and that wasn't really the point, and that didn't feel like the point of Jesus' message either. In fact, he was really harsh on the religious leaders particularly. So for my friends in the Middle East, for those of Muslim background, you know, describing myself as a Christian, which I'm guessing probably most people here would identify as that, and you have your idea of what it means to you, but realizing that for my friend Rabia, Christians were the people who killed his little sister in the Lebanese Civil War. You know, Christian militia went around Lebanon with the sign of the cross fighting for their tribe. Um, the Iraq War uh, had just happened uh, a little bit before we got there. So the association with, um, you know, America and George Bush declaring that war as a, as a crusade... Those were things that were hard to unpack and fight against, and it was tiring, and it felt pointless. Popular culture, you know, that Britney Spears described herself as a Christian, and yet they could feel no connection with the values that they saw her living out on their MTV or, you know, other channels that they were watching. So th this, this perplexity was largely a feeling of, we don't want to fight, you know, religious battles. We don't want to debate one set of religious rules against another. 
And uh, we came across this, you know, again, picture or analogy that was quite helpful. And in this picture, the focus was on the kingdom of God, you know, and actually the topic that Jesus talked about more than any other was the kingdom of God. It wasn't religion. Um, So why not start there? Seems like a good place to start. And then to say, you know, that for me as a person from a Christian family, Christian heritage, I can see that there are There are aspects of that heritage which overlap with the kingdom of God. There's good stuff in there. There's the teaching of Jesus. There's the inspiration. There's the greatest commandment to love God and to love your neighbor. These are great things. But there are also things that I don't feel I have to fight for. There's a whole bunch of things that are just tradition that we do because people before us have done. There are things which are associated with church history or politics or what was going on in Northern Ireland not that long ago, Christian against Christian. We don't have to fight for those things or feel that we have to defend them. But for me, I want to move more towards what is in the kingdom of God, the teaching of Jesus. And then I could also say, you know, as I'm talking to a Muslim friend, I can see that in your heritage as a Muslim, there are things that I respect. There are things that I look up to. Your reverence for God, your commitment to prayer, your discipline, you know, those are things that I can only admire your sincerity. And I don't have to fight against that. I can recognize that there is some overlap there with the kingdom of God. God has put some good into your story and your heritage as well. Um, and, you know, you could add on, there's a, another circle coming on, which could be if, you know, you're talking about people from a Jewish heritage, or, you know, maybe you can use it too for people who have no faith, that you could actually find things that you admire about their, their questioning. Um, the key point really was, you know, the arrows at the bottom, that what we're, what we're not trying to do is fight for a change of religion. We're not, and Jesus was not about trying to exchange one set of religious rules for another. It was about something deeper than that in the kingdom of God. Or maybe we could say it was something above that, something higher than that, which was about the heart and about the kingdom. Again, not a perfect picture. But for me, in the complexity and in the confusion or perplexity of what I was living in at that time in the Middle East, this was a helpful one that brought some harmony, that brought me to a place of peace with my beliefs and my faith. Last example, 2012, we came back to the UK, um, and this raised a different set of questions. Primarily for me, it was around what is church, and why do we do church like this? And that question was important because for eight years in the Middle East, we hadn't been part of Sunday church. We hadn't been part of a big gathering. And to be honest, we hadn't really missed it. We'd been part of a house church. It had been really deep community. We're really sharing life and purpose together. But I recognized that coming back here, relationship and community were drawing us naturally back into it. We were good friends with Claire and Owen. Uh, Some of our family were coming here to Seven. And so it was kind of a natural default thing. But I found that I had um, these questions, uh, which maybe you guys can relate to, of why do we do it like this? Why do we worship in the same way? Why Why do we have a talk like this where I'm speaking for so long and you guys are listening, even though you have loads to contribute and give? Um... Why do we spend so much money when there's you know, plenty of things that, that our money could go towards? And uh, why are the chairs so well organized? Can't we just make it a bit more for, informal, a bit more chilled? Like, honestly, I you know, struggled with those things. 
And you know, to cut a long story short, the, my sense of harmony in that and the invitation to get involved and um, not feel that I had to change everything or fix everything, I think it was the Holy Spirit that gave me this thought, you know, that there isn't a perfect model of church, but isn't God big enough to use any and every model? You know, I could spend all day critiquing uh, different ways of doing church and life, but isn't God big enough? Isn't he present in the midst of imperfect systems? And the invitation was, you know, get involved. Look for me in it. And live out the commitment to community um, in the midst of it. So again, very briefly, it was that simplicity. uh, As I kind of came back and I saw the way of doing church in the West as uh, imperfect or wrong through some complexity because of relationship and community and then into perplexity, what should I do about it, and some sense of harmony, because God gave me that thought um, around um, him being big enough to be present in, in any system. So those are you know, three little examples from my life. Um, I wonder for you, what are the areas where you can see that cycle, where you can see those stages? I bet if you think about the challenges maybe the difficulties or the crises that you've had in your life and what's kept you going, I bet you'll be able to see some of that same process at work. So perhaps in a very small way, we can say, like Thomas, that something good does come out of our questions, out of our doubts, that our doubts can even lead us towards a deeper or a fuller or a richer or a more beautiful way of seeing things. But in the moment of our crisis, of our perplexity, it can be difficult to see that and to feel it. So I'd encourage you just to ask another question, which is, what are my anchors? What am I holding on to in the midst of the questions we're discussing as a community? Is is there anything that I can hold on to? Is there anything that I can know? You know, Thomas had the memory of those scars, didn't he? He had the memory of putting his finger in Jesus' side. And most likely, we don't have that. I wish we did. But what, we, what do we have to hold on to? Here are some that I've been thinking about. Okay, these are just for me. Yours will be different, okay? For me, the existence of God is one that I don't really wrestle with. I mean, I can go there. I can question it. Um, I've had those moments. But for me, the world makes more sense um, if there is a creator. And my brain gets stuck when I try to conceive of a universe happening by chance, of my experience of love and of wonder being just a result of evolution and scientific progress. So I don't really wrestle with the question of whether God is there. I'm open to, to questioning the way that we understand him, that maybe we've got lots of things wrong, that maybe the way we go about relating him Uh, We have a lot to learn, but whether he's there or not, for me personally, that's not a a big or common one. I can accept that smarter minds may disagree with me on that one, though. Second one is living in community. You know, those questions I conveyed about church, how we do it. Um, Well, the the thing that makes sense to me about church is sharing life together. We need each other, and community can stop me from coasting. It can stop me from just drifting along into obscurity. Um, and that's why I think for, for Karen and I, you know, we've had a, a community group going for about eight years now. It's not because it's part of my job. It's not because 
we're addicted to it, but it just it's, it makes sense to us uh, to do life like that. The third one I've put down as get on with serving. This is kind of like a check to myself, like don't get stuck in the questions. Don't spend too much time and energy um, wrestling with intellectual questions that I'm not really smart enough to work through. Um, I know if there's, you know, one thing that's clear to me in the Bible is God's heart for the poor, um, God's heart for justice. And I know that if I engage with that, if I actually go and put myself in places where people are in need, where I have the opportunity to, to serve in some small way that, that I find joy and it makes sense to me. And actually those bigger questions can become maybe less important or less paralyzing. And then the last one, just to finish with, is the life and teaching of Jesus, the, the inspiration of Jesus. If you remember that centered set and whether we're moving towards him, you know, at the end of the day, am I inspired by him? Am I guided in any way by his life and teaching? If I am, then I think my faith is still alive and that's an anchor that I can hold on to. So that leads me back to the story of Thomas, just to close. Because if we look at the passage again, you know, we'll see the good that came from Thomas's doubt, which we've talked about. But what you'll also see is just the incredible grace with which Jesus responds to Thomas's questions. And you know, a few years ago, a speaker at the Vineyard National Conference called Greg Thompson um, put up two paintings that um, conveyed this story. The first one was by an artist called Karl Block, and will come up on the screen, in which the, the overriding um, mood, really, is indignation. I mean, Jesus looks a bit peeved, doesn't he? He doesn't look thrilled that Thomas is demanding to see his scars. He's kind of pointing, not even looking at the scars. It's like, there it is. Come on. Get your evidence and then go away. Be quiet. And Thomas is kind of cowering. It's a sense of shame. I shouldn't have had those doubts. I, shouldn't, I should have just accepted what people told me. But there's another artist called Caravaggio who painted this scene in a very different way. And in this next scene, it's much more intimate. Jesus is grasping Thomas's hand and pulling him towards him, towards his scars. I mean, it feels a little bit awkward, but there's no sense of indignation. In fact, the sense is invitation. It's come and see, come close. I'm not against you asking these questions. I'm not angry with you because you said, unless I see. And in the verses that we looked at earlier, you know, the first thing Jesus says when he enters the room is, peace be with you. He's not angry with Thomas. And then he says to Thomas, and I love how each thing he says matches Thomas's challenge or ultimatum. You know, Thomas said, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand in his side, three things I won't believe. And Jesus answers all three. Put your finger here, see my hands, reach out your hand and put it in my side. It's beautiful. So I think it's that second painting which captures Jesus' response to our questions and our doubts. I think he's okay with them. He's not indignant or angry, but he invites us in. He invites us closer, even if, like Thomas, we're not sure that he's there. If we're not sure he's real, he invites us in. So the question I want to leave each of you and myself with today is, do we accept 
that invitation again. Irrespective of where we're at, how far away or how close we might feel, whether things look sorted in our lives or a complete mess, which direction are you moving in today? Because Jesus invites you to come towards him, to soften your heart again, to allow those questions and those doubts to actually force us to engage with him again, to ask for more. And I hope that you and I will say yes to that invitation. Why don't we pray to finish? Jesus, thank you for your example and thank you that this story made it into the Gospels so we could see uh, your response to Thomas's questions. And for each of us, Lord, as we think about our own journey and those, uh, those things we may have learned along the way, those things we may have wrestled with along the way, Lord, we're, still, we're here today, we're still in the game because there is still a spark of faith and hope in our hearts. And we do bring you our questions, we do bring you our doubts, Lord, knowing that you respond with grace and you're okay with them. But we also today want to respond by saying yes to your invitation. Lord, as you pull our hand towards yourself, as you invite us to experience you, we want to say yes to that today.